You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Bruce Evan Barnhart, the author of Jazz in the Time of the Novel, The Temporal Politics of American Race and Culture. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. You know, this idea that uh, the novel encodes a certain kind of form, and that if we get jazz and the novel together, as we do in the 20s and 30s, then we get a certain kind of hybrid form of a very futural-oriented uh, temporality based on the novel and a certain kind of rhythmic embrace for the present based upon the jazz. With James Baldwin, could you go into how jazz was interwoven or was a part of his style? Yeah, I mean, there's an interview where he says, you know, I'm, I've helplessly modeled myself on jazz musicians. And so it's there kind of sometimes thematically in some of his novels, particularly Another Country. But if you read his interviews, it's kind of everywhere. It saturates his style. He thinks of it as something like a philosophy of existence. And of course, the famous example is when he's trying to write his first novel and he's holed up in a Swiss village. He's stuck. He can't create anything, but he's got a stack of Bessie Smith records. And so then listening to Bessie Smith sing and the cadence and rhythm of her voice opened up a possibility for him writing, you know, fiction and about his own life at the same time. But the best, I think... Baldwin writing on jazz, at least in the fictional realm, is this short story called Sonny's Blues. And I think most people know it pretty well, but it's about how these two brothers can reconcile. Right? And they're very different. And the older brother is the narrator. And he says something like, the age difference between us is like a chasm, right? And he wondered if it could ever be a bridge, right? And so that idea of making the age difference into a bridge I think is something very jazz-like. Right? It's not saying, let's bring us together so that we're the same. We have this difference, but many wonders, could this difference ever be a bridge? And I think that's the question that jazz asks. And of course it answers it. And it says, yes, right? It can be a bridge and it can be just kind of an ecstatic and profound celebration of human art and the shaping of not only musical structures, but as I've said, social structures. So how can difference be a bridge, I think, is that question that Baldwin asks thematically in that short story, and then jazz answers it. And so Baldwin, of course, is a different time period than my book was about, but I think of him as a very crucial figure for anybody who wants to think about jazz and its importance. You were asking me actually about how jazz informs the way in which I write and think about things. Think that Having the practice of performing music and knowing how the different forms work together, it allows you to write about it in a certain way. But I think that not enough people write about music. And I would encourage all sorts of people who don't even have musical expertise to think about music and write through it because James Baldwin didn't have any musical expertise. He was not trained in piano or trombone or anything. And yet, right, by listening carefully to the music and thinking about its implications, he wrote these incredibly insightful things. And that's true of Toni Morrison. I guess Ralph Allison did have some musical training. But I think one shouldn't let a lack of musical expertise dissuade one from really considering the importance of certain jazz performances. Of course, it's hard to generalize about the novel as a form because there are so many different instantiations of novel. There's so many great novels. But in general, especially when thinking about the early 20th century, you would say that the novel has a certain kind of idea of progressive development built into it. Right? When you read the novel, it's as if you can kind of feel that sharp edge of the end of the novel, right? You know there's an ending coming and you don't know exactly what the ending is going to be, 
but you know that it's going to link everything up and it all makes sense. Right? So it trains you to kind of lean towards the future in a certain way. You read an individual event, but you're kind of storing it away. You're saying, oh, this will be important later. And so then everything has this kind of horizon of the future towards it. Right? And so you, you're, you train yourself in reading a novel to take individual events and link them all to future redemption or something like that. Where jazz does not do that. It has a certain kind of repetition in it. And when something, you know, interesting happens in the moment, it is enjoyed for itself. It's not necessarily going to be picked up later or incorporated into an overall form, but it just is a contingent event that has its own density and beauty to it in the moment. Thinking about the different roots in the treatment of time and expectations, as you were saying, whether it's going back to some like African rhythms or the different elements that go into jazz that make this kind of alchemy. Can you expand upon those to help us understand, you know, the creation of jazz? Yeah, there's a great deal of debate about when exactly jazz started, but it's clearly something that's emerging either the very last decade of the 19th century or the first two decades of the 20th century. And there's also a great deal of debate about how much kind of what they call African retentions are alive in the music. And I think they're there and I think they're very important, particularly when you hear the ways in which a singer like Bessie Smith will bend the notes in a blues performance and also a certain kind of performance of rhythm. It's not necessarily truly polyrhythmic, but it has a kind of polyrhythmic to it. So even though it's a straightforward 4-4, four, four, it feels as if it's veering towards three against four or something like that. So there are those elements in it. But if I was asked about the origin of jazz, I would think more about African-American history than about African history. Of course, that's important too. But what you have in this period is a mass movement of African-Americans out of rural areas and into urban areas. And of course, this is crucial for the Harlem Renaissance. So you've got, you know, people coming from a certain kind of rural sense of time, right, to a certain kind of urban sense of time, right, which is different, right? And they're thinking about how, you know, in, in a city, you live alongside of all sorts of different people, right? And so there's a greater need to kind of think about how all these different rhythms or lives go together. And I think jazz responds to that. So I would say if we wanted to think about the history of jazz, we'd think about this sharp demographic movement of tens of thousands of African-Americans out of rural areas into urban areas. And, you know, I don't want to go on too long, but you say if we're thinking about the 20s as a period in which all sorts of different things in both African-American culture and American culture change. Now, 1920 is the first time that the United States is more urban than rural, right? So, you know, there's something about this changing notion of time, and it's not just about living in a city. But it is about like people moving into a city and thinking about, oh, well, what kind of forms of living together do we need? What kind of forms of social coordination do we need? And jazz responds to that. Absolutely. Right. It's thinking about different people fitting together. And of course, jazz is a very urban music. And we think about, of course, the centers like Chicago and Los Angeles and New Orleans and New York City as these centers for jazz. So I think that moment in history is kind of more urbanization. And a setting aside of all the assumptions about how time and life unfold in rural settings versus how do we cope with all sorts of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds, speaking with different accents, all living together in the same social space. Now, that, I think, is really important and really interesting. 
I think on the other side of that, say that the jazz age as reflected through more a wealthier lens of the novels and stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah. I mean, of course, the 20s is this moment when jazz takes on a wide significance. And at a certain point, you know, you'd have to ask exactly what jazz meant to different people because it has a different significance. And I think if we went back and listened to some of the music from the 20s, we might say, oh, well, that's not really jazz. But Fitzgerald is definitely responding to jazz in a way that is both limited by certain assumptions about race, but also he understands that it's a profound challenge to the way in which time uh, he knows that something is changing in the 20s and that jazz is a serious rival to the novel. Right? In the 19th century, the novel is perhaps the most prestigious artistic or aesthetic form. Right? You say what articulates national or human experience in the most powerful way. It's the, in the 20s, right? There are all sorts of challenges to the novel. Cinema is, of course, one, but jazz is another. Right? So when Fitzgerald and the great Gatsby is thinking about the jazz at Gatsby's parties, he's also thinking about a rival aesthetic form. Right? Jazz has got a different way of configuring time, and he's both fascinated by it, and he sees it as a certain kind of challenge because, of course, it's so different from the way in which the novel traditionally articulates time. So then if we think about the way in which uh, The Great Gatsby as a modernist novel diverges from 19th century predecessors, right? one of the things is we would think about his response to jazz, not only in the way in which it's represented in the novel, which I guess is important enough, but more in terms of like looking at a different cultural form as a different way, a suggestive, but also threatening way of shaping time and the way in which that enters into the form of the novel. And to me, when I think about the most amazing things that humans can do, like high-level jazz musicians, the amount of information that they're processing, uh, harmonic, melodic, rhythmic information all on the spot, and not only, you know, kind of taking it in and figuring out where they fit in it, but also responding to it and creating something with a certain kind of form and meaningfulness to it all in the moment. I think that's one of the most impressive things that I've known any human being to do. And so, you know, that's worth thinking about in terms of human capacities. And it's also, of course, going back to this idea that music as sophisticated as something like that Duke Ellington would create was labeled as jungle music in the 20s is a sign of the way in which, you know, race was and continues to be a way in which all sorts of human creativeness and inventiveness and intelligence is, you know, under-recognized or dismissed. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.